podcast focused on lessons learned via the musician's backstory, as well as building successful careers in the business. My name is Allison M., and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. Let's get down to business. On today's show, we have Craig Hurst. His, his official title is Emeritus Professor of Music, University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee at Waukesha. However, he was sure to tell me that he is first and foremost a lover of music, a musician and educator, and lifelong learner. So welcome to the show, Craig. Well, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here and flattered that you invited me to be on your show. Yeah, and it's great to be working with a fellow podcaster in the area. Yes, it is. (laughs) So, and we'll get to that more later, but um, I've gotten to know you a little bit. I think we originally met through kind of social media in the area, maybe. Does that sound about right? I'm thinking that's correct. Uh, as I best recall, it seems like I saw a post that you had put up about starting Wisconsin Music Ventures. Yeah, yeah. And I contacted you uh, and we chatted. Uh, on Facebook Messenger, if I remember correctly, and then we decided to meet, and I'm thinking that was probably, well, over a year ago. Right, yeah. We met at at a Starbucks, and we talked about potential. Yeah, and there were so many things that we could talk about, and your wife Nancy was there, and it was just a great conversation. Back in the times when we could meet together in person, and yes. <laughs> it, was, it was, yeah, we we got along famously. We knew there was a lot to talk about and discuss and go forward with. So I'm just so glad to know you now, and so glad that you're in my bubble. And um, yeah, thank you for being here. And it's so nice to, you know, just in getting to know you from some of the the questions that I sent over in advance. I've, there's already so much that I've been learning. So I'd love to just get to know a little bit more about your background. Sure thing. A lot of things that I didn't know. Uh, so you said that you're from Idaho originally. Yes. Uh, can, you, can you tell me more about you know where you're from? Well, Idaho is very much like Wisconsin in that it is uh, the economy is largely agriculture and lumber and mining. Uh, not so much dairy farming, although that happens as well. So uh, the bulk of the population of the state is centered on uh, three, maybe four, uh, you know, metropolitan or urban areas. Now, I can't really speak with a lot of expertise about Idaho anymore because I haven't lived there since 1979. And I know it's grown and it's changed. And uh, even the university I graduated from, Boise State University, uh, I remember when I started there, it was Boise State College. Mm -hmm. And it had not been that long that it had been a two-year campus, junior college. Well, now it's grown to one of, you know, I think it's probably the largest university in the state of Idaho. It has, it grants doctoral degrees, 
and I probably wouldn't even recognize the place anymore. <laughs> um, now, I mean, you know, because it's been quite a while since I, I, I left, but uh, I, uh, a beautiful part of the country. Uh, and if you like skiing, uh, there's a, a resort just out of town up in the mountains that has, at least it did when I lived there, more snow under lights than any other resort in at least the United States, if not the world. Now, I was not a skier, but I had a lot of friends who were. And very often, as uh, soon as school was out, they were headed up to go skiing until 9, 10 o'clock at night. And there, there's that. There's also uh, a lot of other kinds of uh, outdoors and uh, you know, hunting, fishing, that sort of thing, uh, which I also don't do anymore. But um, uh, it was, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful place, uh, very rugged mountains. Uh, actually, much of Idaho is uninhabitable because the terrain is just so uh, rugged. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's basically what I can tell you about, you know, wow. where, I, where I grew up. Now, my fa in terms of my family, uh, both my mother and father were very supportive of uh, my musical efforts, even early on. My mother used to like to re always remind me, uh, she's gone now, she passed in 2004, but she used to remind me that when I was, when I was a little kid, I used to just love to listen to music. I remember um, uh, having a love of music, uh, you know, I think early on. What maybe convinced me to go into music as a profession was I was very turned on and I thought, well, I'll always just do music as a, as a hobby and uh, discovered that that wasn't enough for me. And I also discovered I really didn't like studying business. I hated reading the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> so in my sophomore year, I switched to a music major decided instead of just dipping my toe in, I was going to dive in all the way. And uh, I, along the way, I can't pinpoint exactly when it happened. Of course, I did applied studies, you know, on trumpet and, and class piano, you know, like every music major does. And uh, uh, somewhere in there, I fell in love with the idea of teaching. Okay. I mean, I loved it, there, there's a high that I would get when I would be working with someone, a student, and they would get it, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And I go, this is cool. Yeah. I want to yeah. keep doing this. So I uh, completed my uh, degree in music with an emphasis in secondary education in 1978. And I kind of met a crossroads in that I wasn't sure that music was the way I was gonna go. So I decided I was gonna give up music. And I took a year uh, working a uh, blue collar job, working in a furniture warehouse. Okay. And I'm glad some certain things happened because about 
three months after I graduated from college and had made the decision to get out of music, I started jonesing <laughs> bad to get playing again. I missed playing music. Yeah, I yeah. really missed And it. you're a trumpet player too. And too. I am a, yes, a trumpet player. Yeah. And I was fortunate that I got a call uh, to join uh, the Boise Philharmonic Orchestra, which at that time was a metropolitan level symphony with a 35 concert season. Wow. And it paid. And he asked if I'd be willing to come back and play because they were kind of short of uh, trumpet players, especially lead trumpet players. That was the part I played was the lead part. Mm -hmm. So again, I said yes, and my employer, which was uh, Warehouse Furniture, uh, you know, 314 South 9th at the railroad tracks, and, and <laughs> that was their ad. Anyway, they were very supportive in what I wanted to do. Now, I, right. I, I worked six days a week so I could take off early on uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, uh -huh. and Fridays to go over to the university for rehearsal. And I would often bring my tuxedo with me to work if we had a matinee with the symphony, which we, we, would, wow. we didn't have very many. But yeah, I would be in my, you know, typical work clothes, jeans and boots and, and a shirt. And I would, you know, it's like I would go into a nearby restroom and out I would come in a tuxedo. And of course, I got a lot of razzing from my, my coworkers, but it was still nonetheless uh, wonderful that my employer was uh, willing to be flexible. Well, after that, I knew I wanted more. I wanted a lot more. Right. And uh, one of my undergraduate professors had done his graduate work, his doctoral work at the University of North Texas. And he also had introduced me because when he came to Boise State, he, of course, brought a lot of recordings of what is called the one o'clock lab band, which is the top jazz uh, ensemble at the University of North Texas. And of course I was bowled over impressed and anyone would be because the that, that particular group is professional level. I mean, there's just no mm -hmm. doubt about it. And uh, in fact, many of, the, many of the people that have played in that, band have gone on to successful professional careers. So I made up my mind that I, 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 would, I wanted to go to North Texas. Now I did apply to other schools like USC and, and uh, uh, try to, I can't remember some of the others, it's been so long ago, but uh, North Texas, as I found out, uh, we used to like to say it's one of the easiest places to get in and one of the hardest places to get out. Because when you get there, what you have to understand is that there are over 1,500 music majors. Wow. And over 50% of the students in the music department come from came from outside of the state of Texas. Okay. And wow even had an international representation of those approximately 1,500 music majors, uh, about half were majoring in jazz. So here I, I got there and of course was went really from 
being a, a fish in a little pond, very little pond, to being a very uh, being a minnow, <laughs> really being a yeah. minnow in yeah. a very large pond. And there were, you know, I I always, uh, you know, people always ask me, well, what well what lab band did you play in? And I said, well, I think I made it to as high as the five o'clock. And that's because there were always 15 other people that could play better than me <laughs> when, it, when it came around to auditions because uh, I had five trumpets in each jazz ensemble and the one o'clock was the top group and then the two, the three, and then the five. Uh, and then they had a, a six and a seven, I think. But anyway, so I get to the University of North Texas and it was a very humbling experience uh, from the standpoint of where I stood as a player, but I, uh, I made up my mind I was going to just take it from where I was and do the very best I can. Well, okay, so here I am. I would fall have already fallen in love with teaching, and so I was going to work on a master's in music education degree. Uh, and then I also fell in love with academics. Mm -hmm. A lot of that was part to my professors I had in music education, because believe it or not, <laughs> this is going to sound really strange. I think I learned to love reading research mm -hmm. and research articles as a result of, of the interaction with my professors okay. in music ed and, and the, some of the coursework we took uh, critiquing uh, research. Uh, articles, dissertations, and so forth. And I really enjoyed the, the whole aspect of, of, of research, which of course, when you get into music education at the high, you know, at the master's and doctoral level, that's really what you're, you're doing. Uh, music educators, the way I like to explain it, we are music empiricists. We observe, we observe musical behaviors related to musical stimulus. Huh. Now that the two that we're most known for and the most obvious ones, of course, teaching and learning. Sure. And there's scads of papers out there about research done on learning music and how to better teach music. And I'm sure that as a result of COVID and all of the online teaching, right. we are going to be inundated with <laughs> research papers and dissertations that will have talked about best practices, worst practices in online music teaching. Right. So I, I, you know, I got into that. And I also was very privileged to study with some with uh, two uh, wonderful trumpet teachers, uh, Leonard Candelaria, uh, who uh, was my first trumpet teacher at North Texas. And he uh, really is, I think, responsible for my sound. That's what I learned from him was about the sound that I make which I get a number of compliments about. So yeah. you know, it's not like I'm blaming him. I'm complimenting him. <laughs> and then the other was uh, John James Haney, who uh, was, uh, he's sometimes referred to as the Dean of college and university trumpet teachers because he started teaching at North Texas in 1950. 
Okay. And it was the wow. only job he ever had. Wow. He taught, yeah, he taught there from, from 1950 until uh, 1990. And then... Uh, uh, but he was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. I also had a, the wonderful opportunity of studying conducting with Robert Winslow, uh, who uh, he was from Los Angeles and he had worked with uh, Robert Kraft, who had worked with Igor Stravinsky. Uh, and, uh, and Bob Winslow gave me a renewed perspective on uh, the movement related to conducting and um, uh, a, a renewed perspective on contemporary music, actually, and uh, really got me, you know, thinking a lot about that. So th that was an, actually a, a wonderful experience uh, being there at the university. I completed my master's degree in 1981. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was then offered a teaching assistantship. Uh, Mr. Haney offered me a teaching assistantship, and I thought, well, what the heck is, may not get an opportunity like this again. So I decided to go ahead and begin work on my PhD okay. in, music, in music education. And uh, this I. This was also in Texas? Yep, still at the University of North Texas. And so I began work on my, my PhD. I completed all of my coursework. Had taken my uh, comprehensive exams, but the uh, university had a had a requirement in place that you could not be granted a PhD in music education without at least a minimum of three years teaching experience. Well, hmm. here I was; I'd gone straight through. The only teaching I'd had was two years as a TA. And because that was part-time, they only gave me one year credit. So my professor said, you need to go out and get yourself a teaching job and then come back and finish. Okay. So I uh, interviewed around. I wanted to stay in Texas because I wanted to stay close to the university to continue working on completing my degree. And I ended up in Burleson, Texas, which is uh, uh, just south of uh, Fort Worth on I-35. Okay. Uh, for for Kelly Clarks and fans out there, that's where she's from. Ah. Of course, I never knew her. This is her right. Uh, she probably wasn't even born yet when I when I was uh, she, teaching I there. Think she might have been maybe, <laughs> but I, yeah. you know, I never I never yeah. knew her or anything. But anyway, so I was first hired as assistant band director at the high school, and I loved it. I mean, I loved getting on that yellow bus on Friday afternoons <laughs> and taking the marching band to a game and playing the game and yucking it up with the kids and, nice. and you know, getting kind of nuts on the sidelines and getting them fired up <laughs> and pumped up and playing music, you know, that whole experience. I really liked that. And, uh, and I love, I, again, it just inflamed my love of teaching. Yeah. I really loved teaching. And I, I, I not only had the high school kids, but uh, I also taught beginner brass at the middle school. And, uh, and those kids were kicking the pants. They wore me out, you know, but I, I loved teaching. And uh, so I was, uh, uh, at that time, initially, I thought, 
oh, to heck with this earning a doctoral degree. I'm I'm loving what I'm doing. Yeah. And I'm gonna keep doing it. So anyway, uh as time went on, that attitude unfortunately changed and it didn't have anything to do with kids. And it didn't have anything to do with, you know, with teaching kids. It had to do a lot with budgets and politics. And mm-hmm. that's just all I'm gonna say about it. Sure. And yeah. so and so I uh uh resigned my position in in uh, the spring of 1989. And uh, I went back to the University of North Texas uh, to to work on and finish my doctoral dissertation, which is all I had left to do. I I just had the, I was ABD as they like to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually my dissertation, because I was of course interested in high school bands and, uh, and, the question came up as to whether or not competitive activities like marching band, solo and ensemble, concert band, sight reading, festivals, things like that, whether or not that drove the curriculum. Mm-hmm. You know, were we only teaching kids three concert band pieces a year because that's all we're preparing to take to contest? You know, is that what was going on? I started applying for college teaching positions. And it came down to, in the fall of 1992, I had been invited to interview at uh, the University of Wisconsin, Waukesha, and at the University of New Orleans. Okay. Very different places. (laughs) Very different. And of course, you know, being a jazz musician, I thought New Orleans, oh, that'd be great. But then I thought, you know, maybe, you know, I love visiting New Orleans, but maybe that's not where I want to live. Uh, and I was looking for a change, just some, a change of scenery. Cause I'd been in Texas for like 15 years and I thought, Wisconsin, <laughs> you know, and, it, oh, and I should mention that in the fall of 92, right before I moved, I was studying trumpet with David Bilger, who is the principal trumpet of now of the Philadelphia orchestra. Okay. At that time he was principal trumpet of the Dallas symphony. Okay. And he came up and was subbing for uh, for Leonard Candelaria for that semester. He was on a, a semester sabbatical. So I studied with David Bilcher. Well, David Bilcher is from Brookfield. Okay. Small so world. I, yeah. So, so, you know, when I told him that I, I, you know, was being considered for this position in Waukesha, he, of course, extolled all the very positive virtues of Wisconsin, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and, uh, so I thought, well, you know, I do not know a soul there and this will really be a fresh start and, uh, a, a new way to go. And long story short, I've lived there longer than I've lived anywhere else in my life. Yeah. So, and when, uh, what year was it that you moved there? Well, I moved here in, in December of 92 because I wanted to defer my appointment at UW Waukesha until January. And, and they part of the reason for that was I had a, uh, of course <laughs> in the day when I did my dissertation, this was the days way, way before social media or any kind of really electronic. I mean, there, I don't even think we had email yet. And so all of my surveys were done by snail mail mm-hmm. and right. the college of music at uh, North Texas had given me a mailbox to use 
uh, and a university and a college of music address, which uh, in survey research, if you're attached to a, an institution, it gives you more credibility and get a higher rate of response and, and so forth. Uh, so anyway, I did, I wanted to continue to use that to gather my data. And uh, so I asked if they could defer my appointment until January and they agreed to do so. So I didn't really start teaching at UW-Waukesha until January of 1993. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they hired me to direct the uh, symphonic band, the jazz ensemble, and to teach uh, uh, general education fine arts courses. Now, when I started out, all I taught, I taught music appreciation, I taught jazz history and appreciation. But over the years that I have been there, I've developed a number of different courses uh, that I've taught. Uh, uh, I taught a history of rock and roll course that I developed. I started that in, uh, I think, 1999. Uh, I had two wonderful interdisciplinary courses. Uh, one I taught for 14 years with a, with a, a beloved colleague who's gone now, uh, Phil Zweifel. He was uh, from the English department and it was a, a class called Jazz in Literature. So I handled the jazz side, he handled the prose and poetry side. But you know, the more and more we taught it together, it was like we were two halves of the same brain. It was, it was just an awesome teaching experience. And then another interdisciplinary course I developed was jazz in film, huh. where I worked with uh, uh, Dr. Mark Lococo of our uh, theater arts department, but he taught film as well. And so what we did is we looked at uh, films that depicted jazz, jazz musician, or various aspects of the jazz sub subculture. Mm -hmm. So of course we would use biopics like the Benny Goodman story. We would use, uh, or uh, Clint Eastwood's film, Bird about Charlie Parker, mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, you know, different, different films yeah. that, that had that. So that was a lot of fun. And then, um, as I got more towards the end of my career, about 20, well, actually in 2006, I got to go back even further. I was asked to serve on a committee by the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin Colleges to develop uh, new ways of delivering our curriculum. Right. Uh, because we knew even back then that in 2016, 17, 18, right up to now, there was going to be a decline in, because we, you know, we followed birth rate trends. We knew there was going to be a decline in the number of 18 year olds and therefore traditional college age students. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we developed over the years was our own bachelor degree at, UW, at the UW colleges. Now, because the UW colleges are chartered as freshman, sophomore campuses, we had to partner with four-year institutions in order to be able to offer a bachelor's degree, which is what we did. Mm -hmm. 
And anyway, I was involved very much in the development of this degree. I was uh, actually chair of the Senate committee that signed off on all the course approvals and things like that. And I also taught courses uh, for this degree. Now, just I don't want to belabor the point, but our bachelor's degree was a bachelor or a degree completion degree because we identified thousands of Wisconsin residents who had some college, but had never finished college. Got it. Okay. That's fascinating. So, yes. Well, it's, you know, so we, we designed this degree. We gave prior credit for learning, you know, prior credit for prior learning, military experience. We examined uh, prior credits earned, all those kinds of things, so they could dovetail into this degree so people could get a bachelor's degree. Right. Well, not only did I help develop it, but I decided I wanted to teach courses in this degree. So I volunteered to develop and teach Uh, LEC 390, which was creative thinking and problem solving. And, uh, and it all happened because one day I got in the car and I turned on the radio in the car and it had, I couldn't listen to the whole interview, but I got to the archive later. She, uh, Tina Selig is works at the uh, school. It it teaches in the school of design at Stanford university. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also had just recently read uh, um, uh, uh, the book, uh, The Innovators. Uh, Oh, the name of the author is escaping me right now, uh, which was about the development of the uh, digital, uh, the computers going all the way back to the 1830s with, yeah. I'm having a hard time with names right now. But that's okay. I can't think of her name, but she was Lord Byron's daughter. Oh, wow. And uh, she was also very well schooled in mathematics. And then when she met a guy named Babbage, who had designed this uh, calculating machine, and also she made observations about how they programmed, quote unquote, textile machines in London. She got the idea of, well, we should be able to program a counting machine to compute. Mm -hmm. In other words, back in the 1830s, she developed all the theories of how the computer ought to work with punch cards. And of course, the earliest punch cards, if you've ever seen anything about the old Burroughs computer, and I experienced it because I remember registering for college with a stack of punch cards representing my classes. Well, anyway, I don't want, I could go on and on. But anyway, so I developed this course and I taught this course. And then I was also asked to teach the senior capstone courses because every student before they could get a degree in this Bachelor of Applied Arts and Sciences that we offered had to do a senior capstone project. And so I I got started with just being like an advisor to students. And then they, they asked me to teach the course. So the last two, three years at least of my full-time teaching career, I taught from right here in my basement uh, via, uh, well, let's see, we didn't use Zoom. What did we use? Whatever came before Zoom. Maybe Skype or Google. Skype. It was Skype. Skype, There you go. Very good. You win an award. You got (laughs) Skype. Um, 
and because my classes went out all over the state because I worked with I worked with students wow. in in uh, uh, Marshfield and uh, Rice Lake and of course Waukesha and uh, I was you were ahead of your time <laughs> yeah well anyway I was very proud of some of the students and the projects that, that they, they they came up with uh, I had one of my students who had the idea of uh, uh, getting donations for cleaning products for the Hebron house, which is a kind of a, te a, a, a place for uh, women and their children who are temporarily homeless. And her idea was to set up a box at a grocery store and get donations. And I said, hey, wait a minute, this is a worthy cause. I want you to go through the phone book or use you know online and you there are several wholesale cleaning product companies in the Waukesha area ask them to donate long story short they got more stuff than they knew what to do with and I was very pleased to know that that uh, that kind of uh, charity could be aided by a project that I was engaged with my students that's great well Anyway, cutting to the chase, uh, in the fall of 2016, uh, I decided that uh, I felt like it was time to retire from full-time teaching because by this time, not only had I been teaching, but I also had been serving as the chair of the music department for the entire UW colleges, which meant that I had oversight of budgets, personnel, and curriculum on 13 different campuses, 12 other campuses in addition to my own, mm -hmm. ranging as far away as Marinette, Rice Lake, Wausau, uh, uh, our Rock County campus in Janesville, Baraboo, uh, uh, Richland Center, wow. Fond du Lac, Sheboygan, you know, uh, West Bend. Yeah. So a lot of email communication, yeah. a lot of, we didn't do so much video conferencing. That was not quite there yet sure. when I started in 2004, but I also had to physically travel. Sure. So I was on the, I was on the road a good deal. And uh, so anyway, by 2016, I guess I'd kind of decided I had, I was, I was ready for a change and I was maybe I don't want to say I was tired, but I was maybe tired of the particular routine. So I announced my retirement on Valentine's Day of 2017. And that uh, I would retire uh, effective in June of 2017. And the state of Wisconsin has a really sweet deal for state employees. In that, after a period of, I think it's 75 days maybe it's 80, after you retire, you can be hired back uh -huh. as what they call a, uh, a uh, hired annuitant. Well, my, I thought, okay, I wanted to do this because I did, when I retired, I did not want to sit in a rocking chair uh, someplace in Arizona and I don't play golf. Right, right. And I wanted to stay and be as active as I could be in music because music is my love. So I uh, was fortunate that after the waiting period, uh, UW was still UW Walkshot at the time. It was beginning to transition to what 
it is now. The UW colleges no longer exist. The two-year campuses have all been absorbed by the four-year campuses. Mm -hmm. But I was fortunate that the university agreed to hire me back mm -hmm. to continue conducting the symphonic band and the orchestra. Oh, nice. And uh, we did orchestra for uh, another year, and then the enrollment just began to drop out the bottom. And uh, so orchestra was discontinued. Now, symphonic band, over the years, I have developed a, a large core of community, non-student community members that play in the band. And that is still the case today. It, it, it's always been two-thirds community and one-third students and largely a lot of the music groups at the two-year campuses around the state are that way they are community. <laughs> i like that i haven't heard that term yeah so uh we've been able to continue despite the uh drop in uh student enrollment but uh i work through continuing education sure uh, which is a different budget stream and a different kind of frame of reference than the four credit side. Now, students can still enroll and take band for credit, but of course, for the last since uh, March 13th of last year, I haven't had a band rehearsal and I won't have one this summer. So, anyway, I retired from full time teaching in 2017. And that's my story. And I'm sticking mm -hmm. to it. <laughs> and you're still continuing to do some part-time uh, conducting or professor. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I still will do the band at the university. I mean, like I, I've told my colleagues, my administrators and anyone else that will ask me is I will stop conducting the day they pry my baton <laughs> from my cold dead fingers. I love that. Uh, and, and seriously, I plan to stay active in music until the point comes where I physically cannot do it anymore. But I'm inspired. I'm inspired by like Doc Severinsen. I don't play yeah. anything like Doc Severinsen. I may never play like Doc Severinsen. But the fact that he's as old as he is and he still plays is yeah. inspiration. Or Doc Cheatham, who was a New Orleans trumpet player who played until he was 104. Yeah. And I, you, uh, I was going to say that you continue to play and you have an astounding number of groups that you participate in. Can you just talk a, a little bit about <laughs> some of those? Sure. Sure. Well, knowing that retirement was coming and knowing that I was wanting to fill my life to the brim with music, I started forming different groups, uh, primarily jazz groups that each one addressed my different tastes in jazz music. So uh, for example, and I'll kind of take these in chronological order, I guess, uh, or no, maybe I'll do them by size. Yes. Okay. So the, the smallest group that I have is a group called Brass and Ivory. It's a duo oh. that I have with my, my wife, Nancy, who's a pianist. And, uh, and so we, I stole the name kind of from a Doc Severinsen, Henry Mancini album, that, two sets of albums, actually vinyl albums that came out back in the seventies 
that Severinsen and Mancini recorded called Brass on Ivory. Uh, okay. And it was just Doc, Doc Severinsen and Henry Mancini. Maybe they had some strings in the background, right? So I, I got the idea. So we'll call our group Brass and Ivory. And we, pray, we started out, uh, you know, we playing receptions. Sure. Because as our motto is, we are sophisticated yet subtle live <laughs> music. Uh, then, uh, because I love early jazz and ragtime, I started Fesserhurst and his Windy Hill Wizards Ragtime and Jazz Orchestra. And we focus on pre-1930 music so lots of jelly roll martin king oliver uh lewis armstrong anything from you know the new orleans and uh 1920 chicago eras of jazz and uh yeah we do we did slip one modern tune when i turned 64 two years see almost two years ago i asked my pianist joel joel matthias if he would write an arrangement for in a Dixie style of the Beatles when I'm yeah. 64, which he did. So <laughs> that's that violates our pre-1930. Uh, then the other thing that I discovered probably eight, nine years ago, or I should say rediscovered, were uh the uh was the renaissance of New Orleans style brass bands. Mm -hmm. And uh they are all over the place. And uh, there is uh, the, like in, in Milwaukee, there's the extra crispy brass band. Uh, there's um, the hot and dirty brass band. Uh, in Madison, there is Mama Digdown uh, brass band and probably the, the biggest and most widely known because they tour internationally and have several recordings, the Youngblood brass band. A quick story. I was in New Orleans two, three years ago, and my wife and I were having dinner at Brennan's and we're listening to the canned soundtrack. And I'm going, Hey, that's Young Blood Brass Band. They're playing a, a brass band from Madison, Wisconsin, here in New Orleans. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, nice. And of course, there are several, you know, brass bands that are. New Orleans based and have played, you know, I mean, that's how jazz got started. Right. Really back in the, in uh, the, the late 19th century. So anyway, I have that band. And then I decided I wanted kind of a cut down version of a brass band. So I formed a group called the big four, mm -hmm. but the big four was really only three pieces. And because as I would tell people, the name of the group has nothing to do with the number of people in the group, the name of the group happens to refer to a particular beat pattern that was uh, established by Buddy Bolden, who was one, considered to be one of the first to play jazz in New Orleans. And the big four actually is based on the Latin clave rhythm. Okay. Uh, and that's the Latin influence on, on jazz, but it also serves a lot as the basis of a lot of funk rhythms. Oh, cool. Yeah. So we I only had three. Yeah. Well, you know, look up Buddy Bolden on Wikipedia. It'll talk about the big four. 
And Wynton Marcellus talks about it also in the Ken Burns documentary on jazz. Okay, then um, we finally did add a drummer because I had a good friend of mine and, and he wanted to do more playing. I said, sure, come on, we'll make you part of the group. And I started getting crazy <laughs> arranging whatever because it's easy to arrange for three horns you know because you got a bass right. line and and a melody and harmony so i would take a new orleans a traditional new orleans tune but i would instead of the traditional uh kind of sound or improvisation collective improvisation that we found i would write it in a different way so our motto was that we had on our banner was uh New Orleans inspired music with a modern twinge. <laughs> and uh, I also would arrange all kinds of goofy stuff like the theme from Spider-Man. And I've got one that's a ska tune that's based on the theme to the James Bond theme. And yeah. be and just because we would get harassed about it when we had Frank Live in, in Waukesha, I wrote an arrangement of Freebird. Because people would say, play Freebird, you know, by Leonard Skinner, right? So, That's hilarious. So I did that. Good and then, uh, the, the, yeah, then the last group is a group that I was starting to form just before COVID hits called the Box Lunch Jazz Band. I wanted to develop a group, three pieces that would be very mobile. We could, we could, not a strolling group necessarily, but we could go from place to place, play venues. You know, we'd memorize our music, not use music stands, and it would just be trumpet, guitar, and sousaphone. Oh, fun. And a focus on music that's older than dirt. <laughs> the older the tune, the better. So I've, I've been looking for lots of uh, uh, resources through the Library of Congress and so forth okay. for things that predate World War I. Oh, wow. How yeah, fun. yeah. That's unusual, and, but really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Then I also have uh, a brass quintet, the Windy Hill Brass. Uh, we've been together for a long time, a number of years. I can't even remember how long we've been together, at least yeah. 10, maybe 12 years. And then uh, in addition to the band at the university, I have been conducting the Southeastern Wisconsin New Horizons Band, yeah. which is an organization, the New Horizons International Band uh, Association was started by a professor at the Eastman School of Music to uh, provide an opportunity for older adults to get their horns out of the closet and or learn an instrument. Mm -hmm. Because we all know the value of the, the cognitive value of learning and playing music. There's numerous studies out there that talk about how it helps keep the the gray matter yeah. from, you know, melting right. <laughs> or getting rusty. So I've been directing that band for a number of years and I have a blast with those people. They're, they're fun. Some days they're just like my middle schoolers were, but uh, you know, we were, we would, we would rehearse at, and we'll start up again when COVID's over at the white house of music, which is kind of right. our, our co-sponsor. And we perform primarily at uh, uh, nursing homes, assisted living sure. facilities. And and so anyway, go ahead. I was just going to say one thing, you know, especially from a, a music business angle that I think we can learn from you or maybe people might wonder 
about all of this from you as, I mean, how do you, you, you're so motivated to do so many things and, and how do you, I mean, stay motivated and then how do you keep it all straight? How do you, (laughs) (laughs) those are the two things I would ask based on all of this. And it's so amazing. And I, I mean, it's so inspirational to, to see what you're doing, to see, it seems like you're even busier than ever. Well, Uh, I would tell you that you're right. I'm probably as busy uh, or busier than when I was teaching full-time. The biggest deal is I'm on my schedule. So like, if I want to, if I want to knock off and take a nap for an hour, I can do it. (laughs) Or if I want to get up at, you know, two 30 in the morning and work on something, I can do it. Cause I, you know, that sort of thing. So it's my schedule and I'm, I'm free to do it. Uh, how, how come I'm motivated? Well, I would tell you, I am an overachiever. <laughs> I, I am. I mean, I am yeah. the firstborn son of a firstborn mother and a firstborn father on my mother's side of the family. Both my or my mother plus both of her sisters are all college educated, which is for my mother. She got her bachelor's degree in 1950 or 1952. That was not common for women. Yet my grandmother, her mother, insisted that her daughters get college education because my grandmother never was able to finish high school mm-hmm. because her mother died when she was 19 and she had to raise her sisters, but for her own daughters made sure that they all got college educations on my dad's side of the family. He, as well as, uh, his, uh, my aunt and, uh, uncle, uh, both my dad was oldest of the three all have doctoral degrees. My aunt has a PhD in theater. My uncle was, uh, he's passed away now, but my uncle was a doctor of dental surgery, orthodontics, and my father had a a doctoral degree in psychology and was a practicing clinical psychologist. So I come from a background of achieving people. And, uh, And I think on my dad's side of the family, it was his father who really kicked kicked him in the butt because he only had an eighth grade education sure Hmm. so when i got to be 16 17 18 there was no question about going to college it was just a matter of where and uh and i've always had a tremendous amount of support for uh all of my uh in endeavors in uh education uh, music. I'll tell you one quick story. When I got yeah. the gig, when I got the gig with the Boise Philharmonic, my parents, who were not particularly classical music fans, they grew up during the big band era. They loved dancing. They loved big band music, but they were not classical music fans. But because I was in this orchestra, they went out and got season tickets. Oh, wow. That's and the funniest, the funniest story was the last concert of the season we did Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Of course, 200 voice choir, huge orchestra. And as you may know, uh, the little Turkish march that occurs in the symphony, the, the solo is played by the second trumpet. Ah, yeah. And uh, the little, it's kind of a bugle call kind of, kind yeah. of thing that's, that, that's played. Okay, so we get through the concert. It was a particularly great night. The orchestra was just firing on all eight cylinders. The chorus was on it. I mean, it was one of those concerts that as a participant, you just came off stage walking on a cloud. 
my parents came backstage to see me after the concert. And I said to them, what did you think of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? And my mother said to me, we couldn't see you. <laughs> oh, boy. That so to think about the kind of support that I've had. Yeah. And I recognize and I, I, you know, I recognize the fact that I've had a lot of privileges and advantages in my life uh, that other people don't have. I know that other people uh, have uh, struggles that society has has kind of placed in the in the way. I'm aware of that, and I uh, I give kudos to people that have overcome and are working to overcome those particular stigmas related to gender and uh, race and sexual orientation. And, uh, you know, and as the, uh, so I'm thankful that I've, I, I guess I've had those advantages. I don't, I don't feel like I've exploited them, but, you know, and I, I've always, uh, you know, but I know that they're, they're, they're there. And so it isn't all just yeah. my talent that there's things about, me and who I am that have also given me some privileges and advantages. Yeah. What would you recommend to those trying to stay motivated to become musicians? Well, I guess without sounding too much, you know, uh, like a, a cockeyed optimist to quote Nellie Forbush from my favorite musical South, uh, uh, South Pacific. Uh, you know, uh, you, you have to remain positive, positive thoughts beget positive actions, positive expectations will bring about positive results. And I, I'm a firm believer in that. I mean, it's just like, you know, playing a brass instrument. If I hear the note in my head before I try to play it, I've got a much better chance of nailing it than if I just pick up the horn, put it to my lips and blow. Mm -hmm. I know that, you know, that as a hornist. Right, right. And so a lot of it is mental concept and, and always believing that things are going to get better. Even when they look as bleak as they do right now for a lot of people trying to make a living in music, I'm lucky I'm retired. I don't have to rely on any of this stuff that I do to survive. Uh, I do it strictly out of my own aesthetic uh, enjoyment, my love of music, and my sense of achievement. Mm -hmm. It's like one of my projects I'm doing right now is I'm learning and memorizing all 14 of Arben's characteristic studies. Oh, wow. Am I going to make a lot of money doing that? No. Is anybody <laughs> going to care? No, probably not. But it's sort of like when Sir Edmund Hillary was asked, why did you climb Mount Everest? His response was, because it's there. <laughs> and so I try to approach everything as a new learning opportunity. I'll yeah. speak just briefly about my podcast that I started yeah. in October. This got started primarily uh, because one of the holdovers from my online teaching before I retired is a really snarky 
I mean, I'm using it right now, Audio Technica microphone that I bought because I wanted to have really good sound quality when I was teaching online. Well, it was sitting here not being used. Then one day last summer, one of my colleagues messaged me and said, hey, doc, what are you listening to these days? I kind of get, I need, you know, some new music to add to my playlist and, and, uh, and I need, I want to know what you're listening to. Well, bada bing, bada boom. I thought I'm going to start a podcast where I talk about what interests me in music. <laughs> and maybe that'll give other people a chance to, to find out what I'm interested in. And maybe that'll help expand, pardon the cliche, expand their horizons. Yeah. So I started doing this podcast and uh, I what started. I'm, I'm sorry. When did you start it? Oh, it's October. I can't remember the exact date of the first episode. I think it was around the end of October. Okay. First part of of uh, November. I, I'd have to go back and look. That's all right. See, when you get older, the first thing to go is the memory. <laughs> but, but anyway, I started out by interviewing former students. My first interview was Alex Smith, who was a student of mine at UW-Waukesha. He's now a successful blues guitarist. He tours all over the country. He plays 250, you know, plus dates a year or did at least before COVID. I next went to another friend of mine, um, Roberto Margris, who lives in Trieste, Italy. I've been friends with Roberto for over 20 years because uh, many, many years ago, I used to write online uh, reviews of recordings and I wrote reviews of Roberto's recordings and he was very flattered by what I had to say and we began to communicate. So I, I did that. Another former student of mine, uh, T.W. Sample, who uh, came to me in the 90s as a student at UW-Waukesha, later went and completed his degree at Ohio State University and then uh, did his master's at William Patterson in New Jersey and then got his doctor doctorate from Five Towns uh, College in New York. It's in Brooklyn. No, it's one of the boroughs. I can't remember now if it's Brooklyn or the, yeah, I think Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, and is beginning to have a wonderful jazz career in New York. And, uh, and then it just kind of began to expand. I interviewed, you know, you uh, mm -hmm. as part of a series of five interviews, uh, talking to musical entrepreneurs in the uh, Milwaukee area, because I really want to help. Mm -hmm. I'm not making a dime, mm -hmm. but I want to help and be part of promoting the music scene in our area. I want, I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So I'm not going to be grousing about, oh, I can't get a gig, da, 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 you know, sort of thing. I'm, I'm going to put emphasis on the positive. And here's people I know and what they're doing. And maybe you can find a niche similar or, or find, go to these people for uh, assistance, you know, if you're one of my listeners. So, Absolutely. And I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you oh, for asking. You bet. You bet. I think the more we help each other, the better off we are. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, I have just a couple more questions for you. Do you, uh, is there any particular lesson that you've learned along the way throughout your, your time in academia or as a musician or doing some of these extra sort of music business sort of 
enterprises that you've done, uh, maybe including the podcast or other things along the way, that uh, you could you could share as advice to the audience here. You bet. Mm-hmm. Take what you do seriously, but don't ever take yourself seriously. <laughs> and I mean that. I mean, you know, one of the one of the best tools that I have is I have a strong enough ego to engage in self-effacing humor. Mm-hmm. And that makes you more real to the people that you're working with. And you always, always, always want to approach people that you work with on a human level because they're human beings just like you are, which also means they're not perfect and neither are you. And, and, and so patience is part of that. Uh, and a genuine love, I guess, you know, for the people you work with, you have to generate that. Yes. Sometimes it's harder with some people than others. (laughs) You'll have to work at, at, you know, really reaching out and, and doing that. I often think about what I do is I'm just trying to make people's lives better through music whether it's as a performer and if people get elated and filled with joy because of something I play all the better if they if they if their lives are better because they're participating in a, a music group that I'm conducting all the better uh so you know I think that the the best thing is is find ways to work with people don't try to you know it's not a it's not a competition to to out outdo out talk out manage everybody else absolutely yeah all you do was get will be branded as a problem child and people won't want to work with you Mm -hmm. so there you have it Fantastic advice. Thank you, Craig. And then I think the last thing I'll ask you for now is um, you, you submitted some music to be included on the podcast. Can oh, you tell sure. Me, can you tell me just a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, let's see. I guess it's been two years ago now. I thought a neat project for one of my bands, my band Horns, which is an eight-piece contemporary jazz ensemble. Uh, it's uh, two trumpets tenor sax, berry sax, trombone, piano, bass, and drums. And I won't go into the whole history about how the group got started, but it it was inspired by a group out of the Twin Cities called Hornheads. I'll just leave it at that. And your listeners can Google and find out about Hornheads. So anyway, I thought that it would be fun to go in the studio as just as a challenge to ourselves. to lay down some tracks and record an album and then also have that available for club owners and for festival managers and so forth to have a way to hear what the group sounds like. Because other than that, the only thing I really had video and audio wise is whatever, you know, somebody had shot on their iPhone, you know, so I didn't have, we really didn't have a professionally produced uh, album. I worked with uh, Music Man Studios down on the south side of Milwaukee. Uh, great guy, 
down there and and he was uh we 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 laid it down and then the album was released because of course you can't just go into a studio record and then release you've got to get legal permission to use charts and and so going through all of that uh getting things properly licensed and ready to go uh and that was released September 1st of 2019 okay and it is available. I provided a link to the YouTube site that has all the tracks from the album, but you also can find it on Spotify and iTunes and at Amazon. And there are two original tunes on the uh, on the album, which are written by my tenor player, Mitch Borchart. Uh, the title of the album is 39 Yards, If You Have a Good Arm, which is the punchline to one of my favorite music jokes. Which is, what is the range of an oboe? Well, it's 39 yards if you have a good arm. Yeah. Anyway. Clever, clever. Sorry about that to all the oboe players. I guess I could have said soprano sax, but you know, then I would have made all the saxophone players in the world mad. So better to anger anyway. the oboist than the saxophone. Now, uh, maybe, but you know, <laughs> I, I most of the oboists I know are, are good sports about jokes. So they get me on them too. So that's the other thing, you know, if you're going to dish it out, you got to be able to take it. That's so. right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything yeah. else that you to add that we, that we didn't get to today? Well, I, you know, I, I, I just want to add that my wife, Nancy is also a wonderful musician yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, her, her academic background is as a music theorist. <laughs> and I, when I, read her doctoral dissertation it really blew me away because her, her specialty was uh, uh early songs by uh arnold schoenberg hmm. and i learned more about schoenberg than i didn't know uh that from reading her dissertation but uh you know and how music theorists could just pick apart a piece of music but she also is a, a very fine uh, keyboardist pianist uh she also performs on recorder with an early music group uh called Hesterness which is uh, based out here in Waukesha County and uh and then during the pandemic uh quarantine she decided she really wanted to learn how to play the harp oh, so wow. we bought a harp she had a harp that her sister had given her uh, it was a, uh, kind of a, a folk harp, if you will, but we, we found a harp sales uh, store, if you will, in Madison. We went over there on a very limited, I mean, it was like they only admitted one customer at a time. They yeah. were very COVID careful, but anyway, we found a beautiful harp and she started taking lessons on zoom from a teacher out of Kenosha who teaches at Carthage and at UW Parkside and also plays professionally. So she, and she sounds beautiful. I mean, wow. like, yeah. Her room is upstairs. And so when I'm down in the, in our great room and she's practicing, yeah. it's, it's like music coming down from heaven. So yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. We'll tell her that I say hi. And oh, sure. um, yeah, she is a very wonderful person yes. and, Amazing musician as well. So yes, no, she is. She, yeah. she probably she has a much better ear than I do. <laughs> you know, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, 
But yeah, all the best to you, Allison. Thank you again for having me on your show. Yes, thank you. It was wonderful to hear more about your story and how you came to be what you're doing and continued success to you. I know we had to, you know, things have changed a little bit now because of COVID, but I'm sure you'll be back at it as soon as possible. I, I sure hope so. Yeah, I know. You're all right. right. Thanks, Take care. Chris. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Today's featured patrons are Phil and Lisa Custer. Thank you so much for your support all the way from Maryland over to Wisconsin. We appreciate you. much for listening we hope you'll leave ratings and reviews for us wherever you're listening from visit the musiciansadventure.com for more information on upcoming guests show notes and ways to send us your topic suggestions the musicians venture podcast is hosted by allison m recorded at podcast town in wauwatosa wisconsin produced by shannon coulard with theme music written and performed by mike newmeyer thanks again